over a decade of experience in video games, and all he has to show for it is this stupid podcast. It's Behind the Line Radio, with your host, Kinetic, and it starts now. Hello everyone, and welcome to our end cap for the long in-development Killer7 project. If you're listening to this on a podcast, we also have this on the YouTube channel, but we have a series where I went through the game, uh, and Vega Goose was with me, and we commented over it, but Killer7 is a very weird game, and we wanted to discuss it further and try to make more sense of it. I actually was kind of struggling for a while. My original idea was that Goose and I would try to figure it out as we went along, but Killer 7's kind of a impenetrable storyline if you try to take it that way. It takes a lot more uh, thinking, retrospect, and, and um, just trying to piece things together. And I actually took inspiration from the Monster Closet uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 retrospective uh, to have... Essentially, this, a conversation after the fact to go through what happened in the game and then a discussion to try to figure it out. So Goose has been with me the whole time and Goose is back to see if we can make some sense out of this. How you doing, Goose? Doing well, doing well. Okay, so as I said, let's start with a, um, a bit of a review of the game. The game starts off... The first stage is called Target Double O Angel. And we are introduced to Garcian Smith. He goes to the Celtic building and is given orders to kill 14 of them and is very quickly introduced to the fact that there's more than 14. As we see Garcian swap by way of a... Uh, Security camera into another person, Dan Smith. A uh, bunch of fighting going through. Building, we see the heavens smiles are these weird, invisible suicide bombers. And apparently that's what makes these people so dangerous, because only Garcian Smith and his associates, the Killer 7, can see them. Um, until you get to the end, where you meet this weird angel, which... Makes sense for the name of the stage. Actually, an another point in the game, and, and this kind of goes to how weirdly deep... I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this game. Uh, Goose, do you remember those people that you see get blown up in the first stage? Right, right. Like like one of them has its, their back blown off. One of them has its uh, lower leg, like everything below the waist blown off. Yeah, yeah, surprisingly... It was actually one of those, when you first play the game, it's one of those really surprisingly violent moments where you don't necessarily see it coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but apparently this group actually, in 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 the lore of Killer7, has a name. There was four of them, two men, two women. You see three of them die. One gets blown up and his head gets knocked across the room. One of them gets blown up and the, the lower half of the body is gone. One of them you see crawling down the hall and its back, their back is just gone. And the fourth one is the one you see transform right at the very beginning. Uh, it's like the Red Runners or something like that. Do they got a note for that here? The Red Gunners, I'm sorry. Uh, 
I mean, it doesn't really matter because they're never named in the game, just somewhere in the lore of this that came out. Um, so, I, I mean, that's just an example of how much detail there is kind of under the surface. Oh, yeah, there's definitely – you can peruse the wiki for hours or, hell, even days and probably not have found every piece of lore that's in the background of these of this game. Oh, yeah. I mean, there – because in, in the playthrough I also mentioned, there's the Hand in Killer 7 book, pamphlet, or whatever you want to call it, um, tie-in. But when you start comparing everything, it's really obvious that the everything written in Hand in Killer 7 is – it's essentially based on a lot of preliminary plot notes. So while it can offer you some insight, it really doesn't line up one-to-one by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, yeah. You can definitely tell that when you look at one and then the other. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we go through Angel. We meet Travis Bell. We meet uh, Kess Bloody Sunday Susie Summer, Yun Hyun, Samantha, all of these people, well, maybe not Samantha, that one's a bit of a different one, but there's all of these kind of ghosts that follow the player around that get referred to as remnant psyches. Um, we're mostly going to be talking about stuff that Travis says because uh, Kess Bloody Sunday is primarily just to give you kind of hints about how to beat certain enemies. Uh, Yun Hyun is only there to give you hints about how to get through some puzzles. Um, there's also Iwazaru, who is, again, kind of just gives you hint for certain puzzles in a, in a peculiarly overt way. Iwazaru is the really weird one with the kind of gimp suit that's strung up from, I don't know, a tether or a, a bungee cord kind of a thing. What I love best about him is that he tries to be just so... Like he's trying to you know be cryptic right until like the last two sentences where it's like in case you didn't get it from yeah. this, just go do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um Samantha being the uh, like a maid, but uh her inclusion in this is really weird. Susie is this disembodied head that you keep finding that gives you plot important magic rings to get through certain things. Uh, that was your all thinking. Yes, you probably would have made more sense if she were a hand, but you know, that's neither here nor there. That would have made more sense, huh? <laughs> well, actually, while, while we're on the topic of Susie, uh, I think it was implied, and we'll get to this later, but she was one of the victims of Curtis in the uh, encounter stage with the organ trafficking. Right. That's what. That's what the impression I got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, right, we're in this. We're Gershian Smith, we switch to Dan Smith, you go through the stage, you start unlocking these different personalities that you can switch between, although you can't necessarily switch back to Gershian. Um, you get to the end of the stage, you see the angel, uh, you fight her, you shoot off her wings, you shoot her in the back from these four faces, and then you realize that this is uh, actually kind of a different character in disguise, or like a puppet of a different character named Kun Lan, who apparently Kun Lan and Harmon Smith have been in conflict with each other. They know each other. Um, there's a very odd... And, and this is the weird thing to start off this, the, the game with at the end of the first stage, uh, where Harmon Smith, you are, you, you're forced to be Harmon Smith 
in this section, and to get through it, you have to shoot Coonland in his glowy hand, which is referred to as a god hand. And he catches the bullet, and, and it drags him, like, half a mile away onto something that looks like the Seattle Space Needle. And they, for some reason, from this great distance, have an exchange, it would seem. You know, the world doesn't change. It's gotten smaller to where you can control it from your hand like a PDA, Kunland says. And oddly enough, the stage ends there. Uh, so what we have been thrown into is this world where there's these odd, invisible suicide bomber monster things called the Heaven Smile. And somehow Kunlan seems to be associated with them. And we are apparently a shapeshifter. And when you play through it at first, it seems like this might be some kind of maybe symbolic thing. But no, I th I'm pretty sure that's meant to be literal. Uh, we yeah, it's definitely it's definitely hard to tell. The fellow your first time through, I remember the first time we did stage one, I was sitting here for the bulk of it going, what the hell? But as time passed, yeah, you get the feeling that it's definitely because at first you think you're just changing into different people. But then when the stage ends, you realize that. Maybe it's all – first you think maybe it's all one guy and you're just seeing it through his head. But then as you get further in, you realize that maybe you actually are a shapeshifter. <laughs> yeah, there's – because when you do the transition, you see the character kind of explode in that weird um, pixelated blood kind of thing that the game does and then reconvene or recongeal into a different character. And it's presented in a way in different stages like, oh, you have to be a child to get through this door. And while an adult could still crawl through it, I mean, it's it's meant to represent, like, there's an actual physical change that, that happened. Or, right. like, your it, eyes have to be at this level to scan through. Or there's a, the again, at Curtis's estate, there's a bit where there's, like, an eye scanner that you have to be damned to get through it. So there's, like, physical changes that are happening. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we'll get to that. But in the next stage, um, Sunset, uh, we start... With now, now that we've kind of been thrust into things and we know we're an assassin and there's all this weird stuff going on, we get this long video explaining what the history, like alternate history of this world is, where um, there, there was this big international effort to make world peace happen. There was like this worldwide nuclear disarmament that happened. Um, including a very unrealistic method of disposal where they launched ICBMs into the atmosphere and then shot them down with other ICBMs, which, oh boy, that's not how that works, but it, it doesn't matter. This is not a real thing. They like do stuff to ground all air flights so that there won't be terrorism through um, uh, airliner lines or anything like that. So they have to construct trans-ocean highways for people to be able to, to uh, get across them reasonably. And if this sounds really unworkable, yeah, it's, it's unworkable that this, this game is pretty heavily divorced from reality. Yeah. You may be able to just go in with the mindset, screw physics, screw society, <laughs> do whatever. Kinda. Um, so with all of this, there was a UN delegation that was supposed to, you know, advance some more of the workings of world peace and a new form of terrorism called the smiling faces showed up. And in the video, we see someone smile and then suicide bomb at the United Nations, which strained a whole bunch of other stuff. Exactly. The nature of it is at best cloudy in the game's narrative. 
there was a whole bunch of work to try to make anti-terrorist forces to combat them, but the only group that could be relied on to actually kill the smiling faces was the Killer Seven. Um, and that's us, or the player. As the stage proper starts, we get uh, introduced to a recurring uh, gag, I suppose you call it, where Garcian's in his trailer house and gets a message on his answering machine presenting as a um, like an election robocall. Um, the election is drawing near. Have you decided on your vote? If not, please let the Republic Party make the most of your precious vote, blah, blah, blah. And we learn that this is his contact, Mills. So this message is just a coded um, transmission, you might say, to let him know that there's a mission for you. And interestingly enough, uh, voting and the legitimacy thereof uh, becomes a bit of a theme later on. Um, in Sunset, uh, we are told... Oh, wait, I missed a spot here, too. Uh, really early on in this, we also learn about missiles that got launched towards Japan, which seemed to be nuclear. Uh, everyone starts freaking out, and the United States is in a position to possibly shoot them down, which is why they introduced those uh, intercepting missiles. That whole leap of physics was probably just due to... Uh, probably just done to try to introduce the idea that, hey, if uh, if we wanted to, we could shoot down these ICBMs. And we see these, uh, it kind of feels like it's at the Pentagon, I think, where, you know, people are trying to decide, are we going to shoot them down? No, we're not authorized to make that call. And they get on the phone with the president. It's like, are we going to launch the fireworks, you know, launch these things to shoot down the ICBMs? And then it cuts off. So we don't hear the president's response. The theme of the actual gameplay for this is that there is a big wig in Japanese politics that has a hand in the negotiations for whether or not the United States is going to shoot down these missiles. Actually, the origin of these missiles is never um, identified, and the timing is really weird, where it seems to be like a week between when they're launched and when they actually cross the West Coast. Yeah, these things are going like dumb slow. And on top of that, yeah, on top of that, for those of you who have played it, you'll know they're also incredibly low flying missiles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're like just over the hero's head. Well, if you think he's the hero anyway. Cause I remember when you and I were going through this and we were both like, that seems like incredibly low to be going all the way to Japan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ICBMs are supposed to be in orbit and these things were leaving contrails. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> but that's at the end of the stage when you see that part. So the first thing we're supposed to do is go to a restaurant and kill this Japanese political bigwig named Toru Fukushima. And things get really weird when you walk into the restaurant and you're greeted by three greeters, I suppose. And it's like, and you, you're now Mask DeSmith, the wrestler. Who said they're asking what what are you what are you like how can we help you? He says, Yeah, I'm here to kill Mr. Fukushima. And they all say right this way, and then they transform into Heaven Smiles because apparently Heaven Smiles have infested this restaurant and Master Smith blows them all up. Um throughout the stage there's a lot of these stages there's a whole lot of weird puzzle solving going on. That doesn't necessarily advance the plot. 
So you meet this nervous chef, you save him, in which Mask headbutts a bullet out of the air, which is weird and cool in a way. <laughs> um, and eventually you make it to the, I don't know, the back of the restaurant, and you meet Toru Fukushima. He has an assistant, uh, uh, Toru and Harmon Smith, you're now the old man in the wheelchair again, Harmon Smith, have some tea. And here is where the Yakumo first comes up, where this uh, Japanese political bigwig was joined into the Japanese United Nations Party, which is very confusingly named because when they start talking about the United Nations, you always have to stop and, and check if they're talking about the Japanese political party or the international organization. So yeah, you feel like one of the, you feel like you feel like when Japan they really should have picked a different brand for that. That's just that's just not good business. I mean, unless uh, unless one of the meanings of the game was to try to cause that confusion, I don't really know. But okay, that all happens, and his assistant comes in and shoots him. His assistant shoots. Fukushima, because it turns out that she is an agent that's been sent to kill him and try to get the Yakumo for the other Japanese party, the minority party. I think it was called the Liberal Party or something. It doesn't. Really I believe so. Much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Harmon Smith, despite being wheelchair bound, manages to get away. You advance a bit more. You get to a uh, uh, a shootout with her, and the player wins, and and. A, while she took the Yakumo, you don't retrieve it from her or something. Exactly what the Yakumo is 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 really weird because apparently um, the United Nations Party, to, to step back a little bit, the United Nations Party was formed by the Union 7. Okay, this is distinct from the Killer 7, and they're not directly related either. It's just a, how they like to name things in this game, it would seem. The Union 7, which brought in... Fukushima, or he was part of the Union 7 or something like that, but they he was involved to design and devise their cabinet policy, which became the Yakumo, which somehow has magical abilities to let you do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, I don't know why, but just go with it. The Yakumo is the MacGuffin du jour for the game, that if you have it, you can have access to crazy power and powers. Um, right. So at that point, the, uh, that part of the stage is done and you advance to the next part of the stage because Fukushima is dead. The talks between Japan and the United States are continuing and we get the next, uh, sequence in this stage. Uh, Garcian gets orders from another contact, uh, to kill the chef from the restaurant. This other contact um, oh, I can't remember his name. Um, but he's another Japanese diplomat who I suppose is a bit of a turncoat to the Japanese. Hold on a sec. Let me see if I can find his name. Hiro Kasai. That's it. Uh, he's actually going to come up later in this. But you get information from Kasai about where the meeting is going to be taking place between the United Nations Party and and the United States government. After that, we get this cut scene where we see uh, three Japanese diplomats arguing about the missiles. There's two older ones, 
and a younger one. And you can tell the younger one's going to be important because he's voiced by Stephen J. Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the older ones start, um, sort of berating the younger one and he, they, they even offer him a pistol and be like, you, you don't even have the balls to pull the trigger, right? And he grabs the gun, shoots both of them in the head and goes to shoot himself in the head, just at his wits end about, cause his Japan's about to blow up and no one seems to care, right? I mean, People are going to freak out about this. That part makes plenty of sense. But he's about to shoot himself in the head. The camera kind of pans to the side, and you see uh, Kunlan there again. And you see him, with his glowy hand, grab uh, the younger diplomat. This guy is um, uh, Matsuken. Or what was his full name again? He keeps getting referred to as Matsuken, um, but that wasn't uh, his proper name. Um Kinjiro Matsuoka, I believe it was. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. But uh, pretty much for the most part, he's always referred to as Matsuken. So um, Kunlan grabs him, kind of does his infecting or whatever thing with the god hand. And he kind of gets a different look in his face. You pan around again, you see the two diplomats that got shot in the head talking. Like, their heads are blown open and they're talking. So are they undead now? Are they having smiles themselves? Is this symbolic? It's not too clear, but they say he's finally starting to see the light. And, you know, Kunlan is doing some quipping in here, too, about not respecting your elders or something to that extent. But at this point, Matsuken gets up. He has a very determined look on his face, walks out. During that sequence, the camera pans around and you see the table behind him where he was sitting back and... Uh, the other two, the two older ones and Kunlan are not there anymore. So that kind of brings up the question of how literal is any of this? Yeah, that was definitely the part where I started to wonder, okay, so how much of this is inside their heads and how much of this is actually <laughs> happening? Um, so we start going into the stage. And one of the things that happens here is Masked Smith, the wrestling personality, runs into the chef again, who it turns out is another agent that's been sent to disrupt the talks and blah, blah, blah. And they have a fun little back and forth about, oh, you're the baby face and he's like a closeted wrestling fan and, you know, is, is kind of embarrassed of it, I guess, because after you kill him and you talk, you can, after you kill him, you talk to him again as a remnant psyche and, you know, yeah, he, he was a wrestling fan. He kind of admits to it there. Um, but again, a lot of the gameplay doesn't really fit into it other than that you're going through this building and there's a lot of puzzles based on gambling and other games of chance and we get to a point where we see in in sort of a cutaway cinematic uh four people at a mahjong table who are apparently diplomats or guards or diplomatic assistants or something there's two from the u.s and two from japan uh they insult each other a lot they call each other dogs and monkeys uh one of the japanese uh representatives thinks he won the game I mean, I can't tell if this would be a winning thing or not, because I don't know the rules of Mahjong very well. The last time I played it was in college, so... Yeah, it's definitely been a while. Yeah. Um, but one of the guys from the U.S. points out that he misread his hand, or maybe was trying to cheat, and they all pull guns on each other. Um, I've seen this described as, it's like a Mexican standoff, except they all actually shoot each other. And one of the things that I always thought was really weird about this was... 
it, it appeared that the the American guys were on opposite ends of the table from each other, and the Japanese guys were on opposite ends of the table from each other. So, like, your partner is across the table or something like that, right? When they pulled guns on each other, they were pointing them across the table at each other, which would mean the United States guys were pointing at each other and the Japanese guys were pointing at each other. So it was really just like a mass suicide. That was weird. Yeah, these boys definitely take Mahjong very seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it was supposed to be symbolic that we are are our own worst enemies. That's why the American was aimed at the American and vice versa. With this game, anything's possible. (laughs) Yeah, either that or it's it's possible that that I'm misremembering how the framing happened because... The game all happened with a kind of that 70s show camera work where the camera's at the center of the table and rotates to show the other person. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. And I, I kept getting the impression that, yeah, they, they were like sides were on opposite ends of the table. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Point is, all of them got shot and killed. And that's one of the weird things where we see at one point when we approach it, we see Travis and he says, the talks broke down. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> They're all like, dead. Yeah, you think? <laughs> Clearly the talks broke down. I suppose if the talks broke down, that means Japan's going to get blowed up. This escalated quickly. Um, You get to the end of the stage, and you run into those two older zombie diplomats, and they do, you know, more weirdness. They throw their brains at you to attack you. Mm-hmm. Um, But you take them out, and... And that's kind of the end of that. And at the end of the stage, this is what we were talking about before. Uh, Garcian and Mills are talking on an overpass while missiles fly overhead. And they're talking about, you know, this is messed up. Why is this happening? Doesn't mean we aren't human and blah, blah, blah. But seriously. Oh, this is also where we, we figured that Garcian teleports because he's going back and forth a lot. <laughs> yeah. His trailer house is in Oregon. And he went to Washington. And back in less time than it took. I see he, he went from Oregon to Washington, did a bunch of stuff and then came back in less time than it took an ICBM to get from wherever it launched over the West Coast on its way on their way to Japan. So on the bright side, Japan has like six months before those things are going to get there. <laughs> well, maybe that's why they got 10 million people out in time. Mass evacuation. <laughs> That'll come up later. Okay. Um, and we haven't even talked about the weirdness between Harmon and Samantha, but I think we'll just tackle that separately later. It's a bit more <laughs> yeah, well, that, that can be its own little bullet point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, plot-specific stuff here. Okay, the next stage is called Cloud Man, where we meet, uh, the Cam Clark-voiced Andre Olmeda, specifically calling out Garcian to come and, and, uh, find him, or something. Uh, with, he, he sends out a video to everybody, and mentions that something bad's going to happen at this arena behind him. And then it explodes. So I don't know if that's supposed to come across as a threat or what. I mean, the whole thing is, that whole video is really weird. I mean, it's all framed around a masturbation joke. It's And one that they go great lengths to make sure you get. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, There's the motion and everything. It's um, It's not that subtle. In, in so far as it is explicit and overt. Anyhow. You always expect him to just stop talking at one point and look into the camera like, do you get it yet? <laughs> um, so Garcian takes a trip down to Texas because while Andre Almeida did not say where he is, uh, he's wearing a shirt that says Texas Bronco and with 
impeccable logic, Garcian figures that no one wears a shirt that says Texas Bronco except in Texas. Uh, he had he had a lot of egg on his face, but turned out he was in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he's just from Texas. Um, yeah, and usually here's another weird little point. Usually Iwazaru is there to give you hints, but this time, like, there's so many people. Like Iwazaru is so freaked out by Almeida's afro that he's he bugs out for this stage and lets a, a, an Almeida cult member ghost do the job for him, which I don't think there's any hidden meaning to that. It's just a weird joke that they did. Not only that, a weird joke that even we don't get. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Although one of the weird things about this is we actually learn how that cult member died, because if you remember, there was the puzzle about grabbing all of the Omeda collectibles, and we had to grab one from a murder scene. And he kind of admitted that he was involved in the murder over a rare Omeda collectible. On top of Mahjong, people in this world take doll collecting very seriously. So it would seem. Yeah, we get into the city and we see these animated sequences. And it's kind of weird because there's so many... The different stages tend to render their... They're, they're not like FMVs. Well, I suppose they are in this stage, but they're, they're cinematic bits. They, they render differently in some different stages. It's almost like if it were, if you were doing like a series of like episodes of a TV show or something, like they had different directors. Or like, um, uh, you ever seen the Batman, uh, what was it called? Gotham Knight? The one that was supposed to be in between, uh, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight? Where there was, right, there right. was like six different bits. They all loosely fit together, but all the different segments were done by different directors in different animation houses. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That, that kind of anthology style. Yeah. Right. Because this stage has this weird kind of mid 2000s flash animation look to it, where all the different parts of a body kind of move slightly independent of each other. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, and it's certainly not rendered. Uh, in the normal game engine like they would have been in uh, the previous stage, Sunset. And there really wasn't anything in the uh, Angel stage. But um, in these animated sequences, you get you meet one person who kind of implies that there's a bit of racism in the area because you're walking in as Garcian. Garcian's a black guy, and he's like, we don't see too many black folk around here. It's like, oh, oh my. <laughs> Um, You're just sitting there like, we're doing this? Really? (laughs) Yeah. But you you get the sense that, like, that one guy also says, like, you see see all this Almeida stuff, you think it's creepy? Well, I'd keep that opinion to yourself around here. Again, implying that a lot of people in the area seem to really respect or even worship Andre Almeida, which kind of makes sense considering he's often referred to as having a cult. If not directly, then in a lot of the supplemental material, like the the Andre the, the Omega cult member that's following you around. But between that and the uh, lady at the post office and the security guard that you talk to, um, all of them seem kind of ill at ease with the general situation in the town. Like something not natural is going on. I mean, when we're going through the town, it's filled with heaven's smiles. Uh, like giant ones that like you, throughout the entire game, you don't see any civilians really during normal gameplay. So 
I mean, that aspect of it where you only see smiles, they're the only ones that are moving. I mean, it fits with the game mechanic, but it is weird to be going through this town and you see nobody normal. Like, the whole place feels abandoned in the gameplay. And they're talking about how this place is filled with a cult and apparently this play, this business for around Almeida just sprang up kind of overnight. And it, it kind of conveys the sense that everything here is really unnatural. It's a very unnatural feel about the whole thing. Um, but again, you solve a whole bunch of, uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. One other point. You actually start going through people's houses, which is weird. And that's where you, we find that hidden, um, collection, collectible figure. Um, but we get through all of the, the puzzles and stuff. And, and this is also where they had that kind of cool, like you go through a whole bunch of, uh, you run by a whole bunch of billboards and then you actually have to take a quiz based on the billboards to prove that you're devoted to Omeda. Which I will admit is actually a genuinely clever puzzle. Mm-hmm. Had me guessing a little bit there. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, you get through that, you get through, you get to the, uh, Entrance to the First Life building, and you get through it. The moment you walk through it, the whole thing falls over. It was just a gigantic standee. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even it must have been a pretty good-looking one because the guard at the front gate who stares at the building all day apparently never had a clue. Um, but you get through there, and you meet Andre Almeida. He's in, like, a space suit and explains... To you that he, the, the, the company here actually doesn't exist. They just run commercials. Now, how any of that works, I don't know. Uh, suppose, I, I guess it's because the reason he's in a spacesuit is because what he does is he injects himself with diseases and uses his body to generate cures. And I guess it's mentioned later in, in a way that he had or had a part of the Yakumo. Which, when I say it gives you special powers, apparently it gives you the ability to beat diseases. I don't know how a political party's cabinet policy document does that, but again, this is the part where it's clearly divorced from reality. This, this is, this is a world where atmospheric EMP bursts aren't a thing, so, yeah. And you and, just kind of have to go with it. <laughs> and trans-Pacific highways are a thing. Um, through all of this though, in this conversation, Almeida is saying that with all of these diseases, though, Heaven's Smile is a different thing. He is terrified of that. And he says that if he were to ever catch Heaven's Smile, he wants Garcian and the Killer Seven to kill him because apparently they're the only ones who can. At this point, apparently the workday is done. You see a bunch of cult members kind of walking back from a van or something. You see a, a, a list of them, and he picks one of them out. Uh, what was his name? Clements? Yeah. yeah, I believe that was it, yeah. Uh, and gives him this rocket car, like it was a prize or something, but he puts in the rocket car and he just has it go off and it's supposed to accelerate super fast as like a stress test. I guess, I guess maybe he's trying to find someone else who can do what he does with the sicknesses and stuff. He, cause you see a shot of him and, he, and his face is Clements when he's in the car, like his face is doing that, like, all the soft tissue is being blown back thing. Despite the fact that um, momentum doesn't work that way. It's not like it was an open cockpit and he didn't have a helmet on. No. Driver's compartment's closed. But uh, 
yeah, again, don't pay attention to that part. <laughs> the At this point, though, okay, there's a lot of weird interruptions that happen in this segment. But all of a sudden, like, attack choppers roll up and uh, soldiers start uh, rappelling in and they just surround the whole place with ambulances for some reason to, to uh, lock Olmeda in. They grab him and, like, strip off his helmet, inject him with something, and he passes out. And then you see this general saying, you know, I'm this general something or other. I want to thank you in your assistance with the apprehension of Almeida and, and some other stuff. And then, you know, scream, explosion in the background where Almeida was, and blood just sprays up into the sky and comes raining down. And either something really weird has happened or it's his super diseased blood it's just killing people on contact so like the general all of the soldiers all dead and you you go in and you see Omeda, and he's transformed into a heaven smile and you have to kill him and he's a weird looking heaven smile because of the whole afro thing it's like he kind of looks like he's on a marionette being controlled by his afro which is flying behind him which is one of the weirder designs in this game, and that's honestly saying something. Yeah, it's a it's it it looks a little bit like um a floating brain behind him, but it's also his weak point, and that's what you have to hit him while running through this weird uh ambulance maze thing. Uh, but when you when you hit him, he drops. He never laughs like a heaven smile. Heaven smiles have these weird laughs. Well, maybe not weird. Your laugh sounds almost exactly like one. <laughs> but uh, his laugh doesn't sound anything like that. And when you kill him, he kind of chuckles and, and, and dissolves like any other heaven smile. At which point, Clements comes back. He survived. And now the white rocket car that he was in has been smeared red with Almeida's blood. He, he, and he can recognize by the taste that that was Andre Almeida's blood. Again... Why he knows what Almeida's blood tastes like, I am not that sure. That just raises know. too many questions. <laughs> yeah, let's just moving on. Uh, but it doesn't kill him, so apparently he's super special with that or something. Um, yeah, and uh, I can't remember if it was in this sequence or like meeting Almeida as a remnant psyche later, but he essentially says that he had the Yakimo and that it will guide. Clements in the future. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's how all of this is happening. It's really weird. One, I, mean, I guess you could see it as being like maybe it's a metaphor for the power of politics, maybe, but even that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I, d I don't think it's supposed to be that mundane. Um, I, I actually took this as a bit more of the power, like a lot of this stuff has to do with perception. And so... The First Life Company is a company that doesn't exist. It just runs commercials. It makes a public presentation of itself. That, I kind of think, fits in. But, you know, pretty much any theory you come up with with some of this stuff, I suppose we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but, I mean, that's fine. Um, there's there, there There is a thing here in Killer7, and then there's a lot of other stuff around it that are kind of like neat ideas thrown in that you can dig at and get pieces out, but not all of the pieces really fit together like into a cohesive unit. 
I mean, they, they fit together and make the game insofar as it's made the game. But if you try to make one unifying, cohesive message from the game, they don't really seem to fit quite right. No, not at all. <laughs> all right. Next stage, Encounter. And here, when it starts up, we get the first person view of a man. He apparently shoots a prostitute in a limo, starts flying down corridors in the building and kills several people except for one person in this uh, office building. Uh, we learn that this person is Curtis, the man who killed Dan. Okay, so Dan was killed in the past and he's here now, so there's some resurrection stuff going on. <laughs> this gets weirder when we learn that Dan has died at least twice, but that's jumping ahead a bit again. Um in a conversation with uh, Garcian and Harmon, they're kind of dismissive of Curtis, and Harmon calls him a, just a punk with a gun, and Dan's more than he can handle, so that's some weirdness. That I mean, Well, that's the tagline for Killer7 in a nutshell right there. That's some weirdness? <laughs> that should have been on the game case right there. <laughs> uh, uh, what was the one? Th there was another Suda 5-1 game that was called a, a, a Suda 5-1 trip. And Yahtzee got upset because it was so much Shadows of the Damned or something like that. And, and it was nowhere near weird enough to deserve that tagline. <laughs> um, so Garcian talks with Mills. And in the conversation, it's implied that Curtis works for the government, uh, trading the organ, trading organs of orphans to create heaven's smiles. And now is or trading organs in general, but now Curtis is targeting children. So the Killer Seven go to an amusement park. In the amusement park, they confront quote Ayame Blackburn, this speedy little girl wearing one of those weird fake anime masks, wielding dual submachine guns. You beat her at the amusement park, but you don't stop her. She actually runs off with a bus filled with children, which is creepy enough as it is oh yeah that's definitely one of the every one moment in the game where you're just thinking to yourself okay this got weird and dark incredibly quickly yeah um the through other conversations we have with say travis and awazaru and, and so forth we learn that uh curtis had a partner named pedro they worked together on the orphan organ trafficking deal uh pedro took all of the boys, and Curtis took all of the girls. And apparently, Curtis lives in his estate with all girl orphans, which I think is supposed to sound as creepy as it sounds. Yeah, there's not much way to make that not sound creepy, to yeah. be honest. Um, Travis kind of clues in that, that um, Dan was kind of involved under Curtis at one point, whether it was with the organ trafficking or not, I don't quite recall. But the point is, at one point... Curtis felt that Dan had betrayed him, and so Curtis killed Dan. Okay. Then we proceed into the next stage, and we see that, uh, or we also learned that Pedro's kind of been skimming off of the girl orphans, too. Man, describing this makes me sound dirty. Or not sound, feel dirty. It makes me feel dirty. <laughs> it's a bit of both, really. Well, I mean, this, it's making me sound dirty, which in turn makes me feel dirty, I guess. Anyhow. We see uh, in like a fitness club or a squash court and there's like blood all over the place outside. And, and then Curtis walks in on Pedro playing squash and that's when Pedro realized that, oh, things have gone bad. Uh, apparently, 
Curtis has found out that Pedro has been stealing from him. Well, I mean, I suppose their definition of stealing. You can't steal a person. But uh, he says that he killed Pedro's son and daughter and wife, implies that he raped his wife, uh, tosses him his daughter's head to make him just break down and freak out before shooting Pedro in the head. Charming stuff, yeah? Yeah, Curtis does not mess around when you piss him off. <laughs> but Curtis is also, like, one of the other guys that, that you see that might have supernatural powers. What with, at the beginning of the thing, he seems to be flying through the corridors like he does. Whether that was yeah. an editing trick or he's supposed to just move supernaturally quickly like that, I don't know. Um, so, at this point, the Killer 7 go to Curtis's estate. Um, and, man, this guy has way too much money. Like, he's got at least eight, like, supercars, because you find uh, Susie Summer under one of them, so you actually have to go into his uh, garage. He's got this big palatial house in front, and then when you're done with the house in front, you actually have to go to another house behind that, which is also a damned mansion. You know you're rich when you have a mansion in your mansion. <laughs> uh in here, you fight Ayame Blackburn again, and when you beat her, her mask rolls off, and this is something that we didn't notice when we were playing it, but in research I realized, and, and I actually went back and checked, and I suppose it makes sense, but it's not presented in any particularly clear or explicit way that when the mask rolls off, that's supposed to be the woman from the beginning of the stage that he did not kill in the office building. Now, whether that means she was an accomplice in that particular massacre, or he grabbed her and brainwashed her, I don't know. But I, I'm, I'm leaning more towards she was an accomplice, personally, because it just kind of makes sense if she took the name Blackburn, which means she probably got brought up as a child and brainwashed that way. I don't know. Seems to make more sense to me. It but, makes the most sense, yeah. But it's also a super minor point, which is why you can go through the game and have played it many times for many years and never have noticed it like I did. <laughs> Seriously. Exactly. Anyone, anyone who tells you one playthrough is enough of this one? No, not even close. Mm -mm. Seriously, like when, when the mask rolls off, she's not in good lighting. The, the, and the art in this is so stylized that actually this is one of the reasons why anime characters have such crazy hairstyles is because it, it, it allows you to differentiate one character from another with minimal detail. There's a whole lot of stylization going on here, but like I can't tell this woman's face from random person there is nothing about it that was so identifiable that you could see her well lit in the office to in the shadows of the estate in the room where you have the duel and positively identify it as the same character exactly that's gonna be a real trick yeah um move through the estate and you wind up oh I just realized how creepy this was, but uh, Curtis has his, his organ processing room built under his pool. You have to drain the pool and, and walk into it, and then there's a door. You go in there, and then that's where you get into his complex. Oh, boy, that's creepy. Incredibly so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, everything about this is creepy. To get into oh, the duel... Grant. Mm -hmm. I said granted. Yeah. <laughs> To get into the duel with Curtis, you have to be Dan. This is where I mentioned earlier that you have to do, like, this eye scan. Dan is the only one with the right height to get his eyes into the eye slit to scan it. But 
really, if if you're going to scan the eyes, it has to have some positive retina identification of who you are. So Dan must have been allowed in in the first place. Um, you get into a duel with Curtis. Curtis actually does this thing where you walk in on him and he does this like lifting up thing. Like he was lying down flat on his back and he just kind of pivots up on his heels a little bit like, um, was it Nosferatu? Or really, if you watch NXT, Alistair Black's intro does the same thing. Exactly. Uh, just trying, it, it's, it's another kind of supernatural thing about him. The duel was weird, too, because you had to shoot when the pigeon flew off of Curtis's shoulder. But, you know, just rules for a duel or whatever. Dan wins, obviously. You're going to win to advance the game. Uh, and they start jawing at each other. Uh, Curtis was, like, trying to give his life some meanings. Like, all I wanted to do was shed light on my life. Dan cuts everything off, trying to die in style. Give me a break, you sick old man. And he fires a shot that triggers the organ harvesting machine, which is what Curtis was sleeping on for some reason. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, um, he then dies in a horrible, horrible way. Uh, the machine like comes in, it kind of looks like a, a car washing machine, the little drying, n not the touchless ones, but the ones where you have the things that spin and, and kind of set up your car. I'm, yeah, needless to say, he did not die well. No, because after that thing happened, this big drill came down from the ceiling, and it's totally not clear how this is supposed to harvest organs, but it it is clear that this is horrible. And it, the machine picks him up and hangs him as this desiccated corpse, just this husk of a body. You almost feel like an R&D. they got to be watching that. Like, how does the drill work in here? Look, he said he wanted a drill. We're putting it in. Don't question it. <laughs> oh. God, don't question it. A little bit like the people who worked on the Cube in Cube, which I saw recently, Total Tangent. But man, that movie sucked. I don't understand how it had a good uh, reputation. Anyhow. <laughs> no, it's just that movie's way too stupid. Um, So that's the end of Encounter. And then we get to the next stage, Alter Ego, uh, where we get introduced to the Punishing Rangers, which are absolutely not the Power Rangers. It's, uh, they, they totally look like uh, Sentai superheroes. Yeah, in fact, I would, I would be willing to pay good money to say that, like you said, the totally not Power Rangers has got to be what they were going for with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, But right after we see the Punishing Rangers, it cuts to a news of a politician being murdered by someone who looked like the Punishing Rangers. And this was a United States politician, so this isn't hitting on the uh, Japanese political uh, establishment or system that we've kind of touched on before um mills and garcian discuss with each other that and this was a really weird conversation timing in this game is really weird because they start having a conversation about how uh these events are kind of parallel uh the comics seem to start uh predetermining what the punishing rangers are going to do because in the comics they said the punishing rangers killed this uh politician and right after it was published like only a couple of hours later, it happened. So that's pretty weird. And then they start... The reason this, the timing of this conversation is really weird is because they start driving and it's it was almost like Mill's sentence stopped and then 20 minutes later they got to a newsstand and he picked up the next issue and then finished the sentence. <laughs> because yeah, it's like he was, they were talking, he was like, wait a minute. And they drive in complete and utter silence until they get to the place. <laughs> 
he gets the thing. He's like, okay. And the other guy's like, we have been sitting here for a half an hour. <laughs> so the author of the comic is Trevor Pearl Harbor, because, you know, you want to have a name like Pearl Harbor when you're talking about tense relationships between Japan and the United States. Yeah, I got to feel like even in Japan, that name has got to be one that's still a little dicey. Like, you know, maybe you should change that one. Or, I mean, clearly the inclusion of this would be to kind of instigate those feelings. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's it can't, the name cannot be uh, neutral, shall we no, say. No, decidedly not. Well, in the, in the, conversation it seems that um uh the punishing rangers or the handsome men as they're also called uh might be a military creation to fight the heavens smiles but it seems there's some complex control or ownership of them between uh the military uh the comics and the video game as like a electro inline incorporated which seemed to me to be a video game company because it was referenced as being a part of the video game tie-in um, but it's also called a propaganda outfit, so maybe it's a propaganda outfit that published the video game or something like that. Um, but when they look at the next issue, it 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 kind of indicates that the next target is going to be the Killer Seven themselves, which, yeah. Um, so the next mission is for the Killer Seven to kill the comic book art author Trevor. Tre- let me try to say that again without stumbling over my own tongue. The Killer Seven are to kill the comic author Trevor Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I got through it. That's a definite tongue twister right there. <laughs> um, so you get into the uh, – he's in mm, – I forget where it was. Dom- Dominican Republic, I think? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Um, you fight through uh, the city – and then you get to Trevor Pearl Harbor's estate, and you got to do this weird thing where you're picking up color palettes, and it's just another weird um, setup. But a- actually, there's one super confusing moment in this stage that I, in my research after we recorded the uh, gameplay footage, I figured out what it was. Do you remember when you go into the church and you see those creepy twins with the old man voice? Yeah, yeah. Those are a character from a different game, or it is a character from a different game. Well, of course. <laughs> uh, I forget the name offhand. Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, Mithra, otherwise known in Killer7 as the Oracle. Um, Mithra was also in, is the main antagonist of Moonlight Syndrome. So if, if, if you're going through Killer7, you see that and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. It, don't worry. It, Standing on its own, no, it doesn't make sense. It's a total non sequitur. Yeah, if it it's... doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. It just means you're not crazy. <laughs> well, just, I mean, that kind of applies to a lot in Killer 7, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. if you're playing Killer 7, you're like, this makes complete sense. See a doctor, like, right now. Yeah, especially if that's your first time through. Okay, so you meet, meet, maybe, bust in on Trevor Pearl Harbor eventually, and... He brags about his power to control events. Uh, early on, though, uh, in this stage when you're going through stuff, you meet with uh, um, Travis, and he kind of... I don't read his line as explicitly as some people do, but he mentions that um, Trevor Pearl Harbor is a seer, was the phrase that he used, which is to imply that he... He is precognizant of events before they happen. 
and that gave the way some people read that whole sequence is that this gave um Trevor Pearl Harbor a big ego and thinking that instead of seeing what events are going to happen he's controlling events that are going to happen so Dan Smith comes in because it's it's always damn when you get to these plot elements it seems Dan Smith comes in uh and uh Trevor Pearl Harbor's like wow I actually made you show up don't worry the handsome men are going to be here soon the handsome men sh- uh, uh what was it handsome black shows up and you know what was it trevor says like oh i'm not worried about it i already wrote it so that you're the one who dies to dan uh they start dan and handsome black start fighting and an Aaron shot hits pearl harbor through the chest killing him uh and dan um manages to shoot handsome black point blank in the head at which point the other handsome men show up and challenge them to a duel which they agree to uh, which, for some reason, and again, this is where things get really weird, they do it in Times Square, a completely abandoned Times Square. A Times Square so abandoned that you could put your head ear to the ground and hear someone walking approaching, which means there was no one around for miles. We don't even want to get into the logistics of this, but... <laughs> Unless the whole place had to be uh, um, evacuated because of the missiles from Sunset. I don't know. It makes about as much sense as them taking hours to go from coast to coast when that really should not take anywhere near that long. Ian, by the time you're this far into the game, you just stop questioning things. Oh, oh, talking about questioning things. Okay. So, right, remember I said the handsome men were an attempt to combat the heaven smiles? So you go into this eight-on-eight duel. Eight-on-eight because there were nine handsome men. You killed handsome black. There's There's the seven and the killer seven, but we're including Harmon Smith, so that's eight. Uh, the duels are already set up. It's basically you just shoot at the other guy and one of you drops because this is all pre-scripted, okay? The Killer Seven, when they die, they do the blood explosion thing. Uh, the Handsome Men, when they die, they explode in ones and zeros. You know, like code bits. Um, and you get to the very end where it's, it's, I think it's Handsome Men 4, Killer Seven 3. And the last one is Garcian versus Handsome Pink. Because they're all named after their colors. Pink turns out to... I mean, at this point, the fight just stops. Handsome Pink turns into just a woman. And she and Garcian have a discussion. Because the woman apparently works for Electro Inline Inc. Uh, I guess they sent the handsome men to kill Trevor Pearl Harbor? And she wanted to make them pay. And what was it? Garcian said, your passion is an inspiration to us all. And... In a end cap to the conversation that, again, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah, I believe if memory serves, you and I were just sitting there like, the hell? Yeah. But this whole thing, th- this again comes back to perception of things. Um, is ele- If Electra Inline is a propaganda outfit or video game outfit, or they're, what, are, what are they running? Trevor Pearl Harbor perceiving that he had control when he did it, when he didn't, or did he? Like, control is another big theme in this. Again, kind of skipping ahead a bit, talking about themes. But, um, yeah, Love Wilcox was her full name. She works for Electro Inline Inc. Propaganda Wing. I don't know. What, what are the handsome men? Are they there to straight up attack the, the Heaven Smiles head on? Were they ever able to kill any? 
Um, we don't know. I mean, the, the, yeah, it just gets really weird. But at the end of the stage, you see Love kind of teleport away, almost like Mega Man, and then you have this weird, like, 8-bit end credits roll happening. And then when that credit roll ends, you see this fairly well-animated bit of Kunlan reaching out and grabbing the monitor with his god hand hand. It wasn't sparkly in that sequence, but it was the, it was his right hand. That was the god hand side, which apparently right. makes heaven smiles or changes people or something. So is that supposed to be us as the player? What is that supposed to mean? Are we going to see... Is it showing us reality or what? I don't know. But the next stage that we get into, definitely some of the narrative rules start changing. Uh, oh my. And this this one gets... This one gets a bit complicated. So, when things start, you see Matsuken standing on the roof of a tall building with another guy dressed up in, in gimp gear, who then falls off of the roof and dies when he hits the pavement below. Now, this is another one that, because a lot of the characters don't have super distinguishing features, it's really hard to tell, but that guy was actually Kasai the guy that uh, gave you a tip in the second stage in sunset about the, the talks between Japan and the, and the U S. So if he was helping the conversation to wind up, not having the missiles be intercepted, Matsuken would have seen him as a traitor and did this to kill him. So this wordless intro animation or cinematic really doesn't make sense. If you don't recognize that that guy is Kasai. If you do recognize the guy as Kisai, then it makes a little more sense. But also, you had another character who goes really far to kill someone. <laughs> well, I, I think I think it was. I guess it was also supposed to be to humiliate him. But it, the weird thing is with that he when he when he hits the pavement, he's also in a laying there dead. You see him, and he's in a position that's kind of similar to um, Iwazaru as he's hanging there. Because he had, like, a broken ankle, and Wazaru has the funky ankle, and um, in, a, in an almost, uh, f like, a loose fetal position with one hand up to his face, and Wazaru has the one finger up like he's going, shh, and another one kind of down almost, uh, if, if he were upright, kind of would have been uh, perpendicular to his body kind of a thing. So, it, for a while, I thought that that was supposed to have been Wazaru, but... I mean, it, do it doesn't quite fit when you look at it. It, it was kind of a, a coincidence. I don't know if that the positional meaning was supposed to actually be there. Um, so we go into um, Garcian's trailer house again. Uh, the normal way where you start going into Harmon's room and you talk to Harmon Smith, uh, that doesn't work now because um, you see like his caretaker is apparently dead, possibly been raped. Yeah, uh, <laughs> when you get into there, uh, Harmon Smith doesn't seem to be in there because usually before these missions, you talk to Samantha and Harmon and get some information, but they're, they're not there or dead now. We don't know why. You just walk out and then you go into this other room that was called the Forbidden Room, but you can get into it now. Or was that the Forbidden Room or is that one that just didn't? Anyway, you go into a different room that you've never been in there before and you see uh, Harmon and Kunlan playing chess 
And Kuhn tells the story of a young man who had everything. He was like top of his class, could have any woman he wanted, was a star football player, graduated with an MBA, but he wasn't satisfied. And then his mom came on to him and pushed him over the edge and he just stabbed her and stabbed her and stabbed her and stabbed her until you couldn't recognize anything more. And here's where we get a lot of weird symbolism going on because Kuhn refers to the mom as an angel who pushed the the kid to give her the divine retribution that she deserved. Harmon asks if she was a hell's angel. Uh, Kuhn said he thinks she had the best of intentions. Harmon says that Kuhn really is a villain. Uh, Kuhn professes that uh, he had nothing to do with this, but admits that his memory has become misty in recent days. Uh, this this is where a lot of like the like heaven and hell Harmon's kind of dressed like a priest Kuhn looks a little bit like a devil with, with just kind of the way his facial features work and he's got red eyes and like a lot of this symbolism just starts meshing into each other and eating itself it seems the camera pans around and they notice Garcian in the room and they they both go into a panic um Harmon seems to be more panicky while Kuhn seems to laugh their animations look really similar, so it's a little hard to quite tell what they're supposed to be emoting. Yeah, you can't really tell if it's supposed to be a, a oh, hell, he called us, or a, oh, so you're onto it, or what's going on with those two. Yeah. Um, you meet with Mills again. Uh, Japan will likely seek retribution for the destruction from the stage in Sunset, and Matsukin's a major player now, and they start... Uh, yeah, here's where some other stuff starts coming in. Um, they kind of figure that Matsuken's leading 10 million Japanese that might be collecting together all of the remaining Japanese people into a single state to try to affect the vote. Um, yeah, United States elections in this game do not work the way they work in the real world. And uh, we're going to get into that more deeply. Uh, Mills then tries to talk to Garcian about Harmon Smith. Uh I kind of figure he's about to tell him that Harmon isn't real, but he's shot dead uh, and Garcian escapes. The, what, what Mills said is, um, to, to quote it, how should I, um, okay, 30 years ago, you and Harmon, and then he gets shot with six bullets. <laughs> yeah. You almost picture Garcian just sitting there as he's falling, just going, okay, 30 years ago, and? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that happens. Garcian ducks out of the car. Um and escapes. He does the, uh, it, the, the, the animation style kind of doesn't lend itself well to, to quick dramatic motions, but he does that thing where he jumps off of the overpass onto a passing big rig truck. Um, oh, also somehow, and for some reason, uh, Mills has been driving the car, uh, that Almeida had. Um, apparently it went from Clements to Mills for some reason. But now, now it's got blood on its inside, so... Oh, yeah, and it switched from right, white to red. Apparently, Almeida's blood doubles as paint. If your blood is thick enough to be paint, you need you, you got something wrong with you. You clearly have the Yakimo. <laughs> oh, I mean, apparently you had so much blood pressure that you could just paint your house with your own blood if you have the Yakimo. Like, I'm just going to scratch myself here and rub it on the wall. I got enough blood, it's fine. Yeah, I get the feeling the Yakima works a lot like the Thievius Raccoonus. Each page gives you a different power. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, it makes about as much sense as uh, Kaede Smith just slitting her wrist to either spray blood out or suck blood in. Yeah, that's true. So now you go to the Union Hotel, which I don't exactly remember why we wind up going to the Union Hotel. But, I mean, it, it kind of doesn't matter. You go in, the doorman recognizes Garcian and his bag, which kind of creeps Garcian out. Um, really not that surprisingly. Um, Garcian looks back and the doorman's gone. And here's another one of those ones. This one kind of weirded us out when we were playing it too. And there's another one I found out. Uh, the, the doorman is Edo McCall, uh, McAllister. I almost said McAllicaster. That's not right. Edo McAllister, which was also in another Suda 5-1 game, uh, Flower, Sun, and Rain. So. This is like the ultimate crossover for these people. <laughs> It's because this is this is almost like a sequel, but it's kind of a thematic sequel, and it's a thematic sequel in that it brings in these characters from other games, but it's non-canon to those other series. It's it's really really odd. We'll um, call it the Legends canon. <laughs> okay, so you go through the Union Hotel, you go through six different floors, and you find a soul shell on each floor. When you get to the very top, you have a brief conversation. With someone say, because you go there looking for Matsuken. Oh yeah, that was it. Uh, uh, I think Mills suggests you look at the Union Hotel for Matsuken. You go there. At the top, you find a man saying Matsuken isn't there anymore. You're gonna have a new informant. This man you see pretty much just in profile because he's very heavily backlit, but kind of looks like Harmon Smith, but young. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that. Uh, you then meet a new contact on the overpass. She's the one who killed Mills. She's, it's, it's, the conversation is like super cryptic where she's like, the, the definition of what the United States is, is supposed to start being called into question or what politics are supposed to be. Um, like Mills was an agent of, of the United States government. He was kept on a leash or something like that. It's, it's super cryptic and confusing. Um, and she says, you know, here's your last target. Go find the real enemies. Okay. The next area which is actually still part of the same stage you go to an elementary school and here's where you learn a lot about emir parkreiner okay backing up a little bit throughout the game you keep receiving pigeons addressed to an emir which is apparently someone who has been asking like a private investigator or someone to uh investigate the killer seven because you keep getting information about stuff going on through these pigeons or, like, profiles of each of the Killer 7 members. Um, in this stage, we also learn that Amir Parkreiner was a student at this school. Um, it's implied that his documents were forged, so, like, his mother and father weren't supposed to be there, or, like, like... His mother and father had certain registered blood types, but his registered blood type couldn't be produced by, by parents of those blood types, that kind of a thing. Um, everything about this school starts getting creepy because you're finding these tapes from an, a different investigator. Uh, something really dangerous is going on to school, um, like a conspiracy going on. And then in the last tape you find, it's it's because uh, the guy's reporting on Amir Parkreiner. He's talking about Amir. It's like, and then Amir is standing right in front of me. Amazing. And you hear a gunshot as, as the guy gets killed. Now, again, if you're going to think about the logic of how did you wind up with this audio cassette 
it doesn't make sense. You just have to accept that one. Yeah, it's one of those where you just have to chalk into the, you know what, go with it category. Um, This is also where we get my favorite sequence, where apparently the, was it the principal of the school, Benjamin Keene? Uh, you walk in, you get into his office, and he's there, and for some reason he challenges you to a game of Russian roulette. And this scene is just so much fun because Garcian is such a, just so ice cold through the whole thing because unsurprisingly, uh, uh, Benjamin Keene went about to pull the triggers a bit nervous and Garcian just like doesn't care, pulls it up to his head, click, moves on. Um, in this, uh, you get some weird lines from, from, uh, Benjamin Keene, stuff like, um, What's a country? Who are the people? What are politicians? Who knows? Um, but apparently, what he wants to do is, if he wins this game of Russian roulette, Garcian has agreed to kill the president of the United States. And if that happens, apparently, somehow, Benjamin Keene has a good shot of becoming the next president. Motivations here, again, don't make a lot of sense. Like, to, to analyze the motivations, you have to understand the rules of the world, and the rules of the world are so far removed from the rules of the real world that you can't analyze them directly. Not only that, but they change considerably over the course of the piece. <laughs> and they change because the way it's supposed to work we're never is never really defined for us. And what we do is the more we learn, we're actually kind of digging down into like conspiracy stuff. Um, we get to... Uh, after, Obviously, uh, Garcian wins the game of Russian roulette, and behind the principal's office, we see a safe. We open it. We don't really get to see what's in it, but we see, like, this line, almost like a horizontal cut show up on Garcian's forehead, which is really, really weird. Um, at this point, uh, I would point out that what was in there was the body of Harmon Smith, which has been confirmed by Suda51. It was about the only thing about the game he was willing to explain, or at least it was back in the day. Seriously, back in the day, right after this game came out, this game had like a 50-something page thread on GameFAQs just trying to decipher what was going on. And this is one of the few things that was rather concretely settled, mostly because Suda51 said so. Um, yeah, Harmon Smith's body was in there. Uh, and it's it's verified in another point where... Uh, it's referenced that the principal of the school's... No, I'm getting this wrong. I'll get... Goose, help me remember to get back to this when we get back to the roof of the Union Hotel. <laughs> yeah, I will, don't worry. Okay. After you're done there, um, you go to the gym. Outside of the gym... Uh, once you're in the gym, you meet Matsuken, and the gym has a, a stage. On the stage, uh, there is a big fat man named Greg Nightmare that's been hung. Now, for some reason, I never, I never quite put this together, but I think the impl implication is that Matsuken, in addition to, to having Kasai killed or killing Kasai, uh, he killed Greg Nightmare, uh, hung him up. Greg Nightmare was the um, head of the Ministry of Education. And that's one of the weird things that you get through this stage. And this is why I say the rules of, like we mentioned, the rules of voting and election in this world seem to keep changing because of conspiracy. The 
The education ministry controls voting, like polling locations. They they just control all of the voting for some reason. So it's pretty much said that they have the power to just install whoever they want. You can vote. And all of the votes can just be retabulated to whatever they wanted. So they could just install whoever they want. Um, one of the weird implications that I've come up with in my research is that the education mis- right. And that's where it came from. Okay. In the tapes that you uncover in this stage, it's pretty much said that this school is under the control of a foreign government. This school is also tied with the head of the education ministry. The principal of this school, like the first president of the United States was a principal of this school. Again, very alternative history. Um, and so it's pretty strongly implied that uh, Japan has sent agents to control this school and in turn control the United States political apparatus like the entire thing might just be sub- subjugated by Japan at this point now that's that's a bit of reading in between the lines and extrapolating but it would make sense that if Greg Nightmare were the one who was installing all of the United States politicians and that the uh, politicians allowed Japan to be destroyed that Matsuken would hold Nightmare responsible and kill him. Yeah, it makes the most amount of sense you're going to be able to out of this thing. <laughs> okay. So, oh yeah, and here's here's another great line. When when um, Matsuken and Garcian are talking, there's this great exchange because through all of this, like, Garcian just seems to be getting a bit confused about this. And, and he asks to, Matsu, uh, to Matsuken, what is United States? What is the purpose of president? And Matsuken responds perfectly, I'm Japanese, how the hell should I know? (laughs) So at this point, you're sitting there in front of this hung fat guy, and pretty much the only thing you can do is shoot at him. So you do. Uh, When you shoot him, he starts rocking back and forth, and after a moment uh, of doing this, his pants fly off and his legs look like a Heaven Smiles legs. At, At which point you have to shoot him a bunch in the crotch, which is just charming. Um, you shoot him enough in the crotch, he drops his gun and his legs kind of get blown off, and seven, like, shadow smiles or something materialize under him. And they start killing off the Killer Seven. They just come at you, you can't stop them, you can't defeat them, all of your attacks just don't do anything. Until you're down to Garcian. Because normally you can't just transform into Garcian. You have to do that through some other stuff. And uh, like through the Harmon's room and, and or whatever. Normally in the middle of a stage can't. So all of the other six go down. You're left with Garcian. Garcian can pick up the golden gun and take out that smile. When you're done with this, you actually go back to the Union Hotel. When you're doing this, you're just Garcian. There's no smiles around. And the um, as you go back up, where you saw the soul shells before, which for the most part, they're just throughout the game, they've kind of just functioned as like keys. You have to collect like a fetch quest. You have to collect them to get to the next area. 
But where you saw the soul shells before on your run through the hotel, you now see um, those different members of the Killer 7 getting killed. And this is where the creepy green sleeves whistling was going on. Yeah, that was definitely definitely about a 9 or 10 on the creepometer. Yeah. Um, if, if, I could, if I could find a solo track that was just that whistling of green sleeves, I would want it. But it's it's always in an a uh, a cinematic sequence, so I don't think you can separate it out very easily. It's not like a soundtrack element or a, a song or something. Um, one of the interesting notes about this is is a lot of them are kind of ironic for the characters' abilities. So like Con Smith, one of the things he can do is hear really well. He gets snuck up on and and shot while he's listening to music, so he doesn't hear anything coming on. Um. That's just one example, though. There's stuff that you can read into that to all of them. It's not really necessary to go into in detail. Right, right. Because it it doesn't really impact anything else. It's just kind of an interesting thing. But the last one you get up to is Dan, because it's it's always Dan, right? He he talks big, but um, that's also where you see that um, these visions that you're seeing of the Killer 7 getting killed, it's Garcian doing them. Or rather, Emir Parkreiner, the bloody heartland. Um, you know, through all of this, you realize Amir Parkreiner, Garcia Smith, same person, right? Yeah, that was definitely a dun 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 moment. Whenever <laughs> we were going through it, yeah, it and and it's one of those things where it's it's kind of like implied a lot. So it the it's it's not like a um Tyler Durden moment where it's just like all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, that all makes sense. It's it's more like a a a, a kind of a straw that broke the camel's back for realization you're like oh (laughs) (laughs) yeah that sounds about right (laughs) okay so again we get to the top and we meet again that same uh man there's actually two of them They, they were both there before and there's the one talking to you again you start and this is where it gets super explicit where the guy says your name is Amir Parkreiner. Okay. There's a lot of weird stuff in this sequence, and it actually also goes to show how a lot of fan theories about stuff kind of go way, way off the rails. Okay, so, like I said, there's actually two guys that have been in this room that that you talk to, right? There's one that, it looks like a young Harmon Smith, and it pretty much is a young Harmon Smith, and you can confirm it by not only the profile of his hair, but also if you beat the game and play it again, you get Killer 8, where... The eighth character is the young Harmon Smith, who, by the way, carries a Tommy gun. And that's going to come up in a moment. But the other guy in there is never named, never does a thing other than hand young Harmon Smith a hat at one point. And there's people that have said, oh, that indicates that he is subservient to Harmon Smith or something. It's like, well, or maybe he's polite or something. But if you read... Hand in Killer 7, it implies that this character is a character mentioned there called um, Dimitri Nightmare, which, oddly enough, doesn't necessarily relate to Greg Nightmare from the uh, Education Ministry. Or maybe it does. I don't know. But just that one little bit, there's people who say like, oh, Dimitri Nightmare is something that tries to keep the balance between Kunlan and Harmon Smith as, as like godlike beings. Or he's 
superior to both of them and is the one that's actually controlling everything. There's a dude who handed another person a hat and there's some people who argue or posit at least that he's the one actually controlling everything because he handed someone a hat. And this, my friends, is why in some cases theory crafting goes awry. <laughs> Especially in something like Killer 7 where you go through it and you're like, there are way, there, there's way too much here that has to mean something. Exactly. And, and because of all those pieces that don't exactly fit together, there's all kinds of loose threads you can pull at and come up with stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. So in the actual conversation with young Harmon Smith, you talk, he talks to Garcian. Garcia and, and and explains that, you know, you were a killer with style. You killed the Smith syndicate, the 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 previous assassins. Um six of them were found in this hotel. The seventh, the leader, was found stuffed in a safe at the school. So that was Harmon Smith, quote unquote. Is this the poem? Okay, so at this point we've arguably seen four different Harmon Smiths. Four? Okay, we've got the young one, we got the dead one in the safe, we got the one in the uh uh trailer that's mute, we got the one in the trailer that talks, and we got the one in the uh uh that talks with Kunlan. The I don't know it's it's difficult to say if any of these are the same ones. Fun stuff. Yeah, it's huh? definitely hard to t- it's definitely hard to tell if like these are the same ones from different aspects or what the hell. Yeah. Um, I'll get back to that in a bit. So, right. Harmon Smith had taken Amir Parkreiner under his wing, under his tutelage, and apparently, like, okay, this is where things also start to get a little weird, which implies that Garcian Smith, an acting agent for the United States government, if he went through the school, was a sleeper Japanese agent... Of course, how that fits into to Harmon and Kunlan as, as, you know, godlike beings doesn't quite fit in directly. So is Garci, is Garcian a sleeper agent and he's waking up to his sleeper agent status because he went through the school? What, so why is he working for the U.S. government? Doesn't, again, whole lot of loose ends here that don't necessarily fit together quite right, but it raises a whole bunch of questions that you can kind of roll around in your head. Okay. After this conversation, you go into another room and you see the old Harmon Smith and Kunlan playing chess again. They seem a bit bitter at being interrupted, but invite you in, uh, saying stuff like, well, there's a sight for sore eyes. Haven't seen you around in a while. Um, it's not sure if they're referring to another personality or if, okay, now Emir has awoken within Garcian. You are Emir now. Um, so like, haven't seen Emir around in a while. Uh, at this point, though, you see the two of them get shot a lot, like a lot, a lot. Um, this is another theory that I've seen that they're being shot by Harmon Smith, which is why I mentioned that in Killer 8, he's carrying a Tommy gun. It, it, it does look a little St. Valentine's Day massacre E when they get shot up. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Cause, Cause it's, it's, you know, automatic weapons fire. I don't, I don't get that from that scene because I don't take the gunshots to be literal. But that's just me. Um, you then proceed to the roof of the hotel and you see a young Emir in a daze. And one of the weird things is, is he's got three eyes. So when I mentioned that you open the safe and you see that cut showing up on Garcian's forehead, that's the other part of Word of God for what's in there. He saw 
Harmon Smith's dead body, and that cut was his third eye starting to open. So you see Amir here with three green, three bright green eyes. You have to shoot him in the third eye. Um, when you do that, the young Amir shoots himself in the head, like puts the barrel of the, of the gun in his mouth, pulls the trigger, and drops, and you see his third eye close. Um, Garcian then starts freaking out, saying, it wasn't me, it was all just a misunderstanding. And for the first time, he looks into his big, like, suitcase thing, and you see all the assorted weapons of the different members of the Killer 7, which kind of shows that, yeah, he was just kind of morphing and he was carrying the equipment with him the whole time. It's, uh, it's definitely a weird shot, uh, or a whole weird sequence. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get sort of a, an epilogue stage called Lion. Uh, I think this is supposed to be three years after the previous events. Garcian is, like, fully integrated with Emir Parkrainer and all that stuff. Um, he goes to Battleship Island, drives there with the rocket car they got, I guess he got after Mills died. Um, fights his way through. There's some smiles left. Um, oh, right. To open the way in, sorry, going back to the previous stage, uh, to get to the safe, one of the things you had to do was give up the vision ring. So I mentioned there were all of the, um, uh, supernatural rings that Susie gives you. Garcian has always had the vision ring. And this is one of the things where you can tell that things are a little weird, where he's got the vision ring, which lets you see the invisible heaven smiles, but all of the other killer seven can do that anyway. So it's this weird transference of an ability. Okay. But you have to give up that ring to proceed to get to the safe, um, which I don't know. There's probably some more symbolism you can take from that. Like he's giving up this, vision of himself or something like that he's giving up something very critical it is a very cornerstone game mechanic that you're basically removing it doesn't really come up in gameplay again anyway but the the symbolic nature of that sacrifice should be recognized okay now that i've explained that part you go to battleship island you there's some more smiles around they're invisible but you can lock onto them and shoot them up anyway it's it's basically not a challenge i mean you might have to keep stopping to clear the way a bit but you know it's really not hard um you proceed in uh you go through the island and you wind up in a place that looks to be back in your trailer in oregon for some reason um and you wind up chasing a smile through some hallways before it's corner oh i'm sorry i skipped ahead a little bit here you fight through battleship island and then you go through this uh, sort of basement thing and you run into Matsikin again and says that behind this door is the last smile uh, and offers you a choice to let him live or kill him. Whichever you do, you wind up proceeding in there and now it looks kind of like you're back in your trailer in Oregon. You chase the smile through some hallways. It gets cornered. It takes several shots from the golden gun and it drops and you can see it has the face of Kunlan. Um at this point, you see an ending based on whether or not you killed Matsuken, which would be, um, if you do kill him, you see a squadron of jets destroy Battleship Isle. Possibly with you on it, again, the timing is a little bit um, ambiguous, and I don't know, we've 
we we also just figure that Garcin can teleport, so whatever. Yeah, um, we like to think he actually was in his trailer in Oregon. Yeah. Um, and a title card shows up saying Japan destroyed in 2014 in an attack by the U.S. Or if you didn't kill Matsuken, uh, he apparently is still around to control the Japanese remnants. And it says, um, uh, do, 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 do. um, you see him on a roof on Battleship Island, uh, welcoming a fleet of ships and jets and, and the, uh, a message appears reading, um, Retribution definite in the year 2014, the UN allied forces launch a full scale attack on the US. And no matter which one it does, it then gives a really quick thing. It says a hundred years later, you're Harmon Smith, you're shooting at Kunlan again, very similar to the beginning at, at, or the end of the first stage. Angel, you have to shoot him in the hand and he grabs the bullet, flies off and says, you know, things don't change. The world just keeps on turning. And that's the end. So, uh, there's the plot review. That that took longer than I would have thought. <laughs> well, there was a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, so, let's get into some of the characters here. There's one really big thing with Harmon Smith that we didn't get into too much. And that's, you go into him in the trailers... You got Samantha, who's referred to as either Samantha Smith or Samantha Sitmon. Exactly who or what doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But before stages, you go in there and you see her. Apparently, she's a caretaker to Harmon, who's an old man in a wheelchair. And she's super abusive to him, like like physically assaulting him, trying to force him to eat, hitting him. It's pretty crazy. But if you... Go to the television, and because you know you—that's another way you switch characters—is through a television in Harmon's room, quote unquote. You transfer, and like you're in this dark version of the room. Samantha's now in a maid's outfit and is very polite and professional, and Harmon is actually responsive and talking now. And that's why I kind of think one of the theories that got presented in the um. Game Facts thread back in the day, and I remember this one was that the Harmon Smith that you see that's kept in the trailer that is abused by Samantha is just some guy that looks like Harmon Smith that Garcian grabbed and is just there to fill a psychological need. And so Garcian just kind of imagines that he's having this conversation. But to take care of him, he needs a caretaker, and so he hires Samantha, a student or something. And because of that, starts putting in a, a, a story about their relationship. I mean, for example, there was one point where this was before Cloud Man, the Andre Almeida stage, where she's actually molesting old Harmon in there. And when you get into the, you know, I think in Garcian's head version, where the lights are out, he refers to her as my dear Samantha, which means in his head, he's trying to justify with a relationship between them what he just saw. And honestly, that does make a surprising degree of sense. <sighs> okay. Which would mean that, okay, the, 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 the Samantha that you see in a maid's outfit, she's in a maid's outfit, doesn't exist. It's a figment of Garcia slash Amir's imagination. The other one is a not nice person, which, 
might be why she died. Uh, that part kind of comes a little bit out of nowhere. There's one bit where it it's implied that um, the the private investigator that's been sending the pigeons had broken into the trailer house. I don't recall that from any of the text, but uh, that's another one of the theories out there is that the text of the last pigeon implied that he had broken in. There's also the strange element of psychic projection, where in the end of it, apparently, uh, was it Johnny Gagnon was the guy, the, the private investigator was saying, like, I'm, I'm here with, with Harmon and the maid and we're going to go kill you, Amir Park Reiner. And they're laughing and blah, blah, blah. And there's a bit of a, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail castle arg inscription thing where he's actually writing the question of why are they laughing as they kill him? I don't know why he would write that part down, but uh, then you see, like, apparently, quote, Samantha, unquote, has killed him and written in to finish the letter to invite Garcia into a certain place. I forget exactly where that one was, but how would that make any sense? Well, maybe since Amir slash Garcian seems to be rather supernaturally powerful that there was a psychic projection of Harmon and Samantha, the versions of him in his head that he talks to there interacting with uh, Johnny Gagnon, which again does make a surprising amount of sense. <laughs> <laughs> and there is further uh, precedent for the psychic projection version, because at the beginning of angel, when at the very end, when you're going up, you transfer into Harmon Smith going in to attack the angel. You have to snipe out its wings. That is where Samantha Sitbon shows up in the maid outfit, walking behind or pushing Harmon until he rolls away. And as he separates, she just vanishes in a bit of static. So if we take what we're seeing as literal, if somewhat unclear, then another person was projected into that space. Okay. If you can... If, if you're with me this far, now I'd like to talk about where Garcian got these abilities from. <laughs> you still with me, Goose? I am indeed. Okay. Now, I might, I might be going off a little bit on any of these, so, so if I am, please bring me back to Earth. I will do my best. <laughs> it's a little hard with this game. Okay. This is a world where we have to accept that supernatural things happen. We have to accept that the Yakumo, as an item, grants powers. We've seen supernatural things happening. Now the question is, what is the source of these things? Are these things that manifest themselves naturally in the world? Or is everything a byproduct of godlike beings, Harmon, Smith, and Kunlan? Now, on first glance you would say that they seem to generate themselves. But there's a catch. One of the main things that we see in the, that we interact with that has supernatural powers is Garcian Smith slash Amir Parkreiner himself. Right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, if Amir Parkreiner, as a child, was trained in this school to become an assassin, and he was a particularly good assassin, and wound up taking on the Smith Syndicate, which was a... a group of assassins under Harmon Smith, we'll say it was Celestial Entity Harmon Smith, which would explain why Dan died and came back to be killed again. Um, and that's when young man Harmon Smith 
that we have the conversation with at the top of the hotel the second time says, you were one of the assassins with style, right? And I took you under my wing. Now, does that mean Garcian had supernatural powers, which is what gave him that kind of style? Or does Harmon Smith, celestial entity Harmon Smith, taking Garcian or Emir under his wing, give him those abilities? That is a really interesting question. Okay. Because when Garcian is on his own, or rather, Emir Parkreiner, as Emir Parkreiner, he has three eyes. He has a third eye, which apparently shows him the truth, which I guess is another symbol where if he is, as Garcian Smith doesn't have his third eye, he has blinded himself to the truth. And again, <laughs> the flow of time in Killer 7 is convoluted. If Garcian Smith had to shoot Emir, young Emir Parkreiner in the third eye to get it to close, how did that happen? Because that was, what, 30 years ago, according to Mills? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The only thing I can figure based on that is maybe the implication is that as Garcian as we play him is basically an avatar for the Smiths, maybe this is the implication that it was the Smiths that blinded Amir's third eye and thus made him turn into what Garcian will become, maybe. Interesting thought, um, especially because at the very end when Gar- when Amir kills Dan Smith, they're, they're in a face-to-face shoot-off. Like, they both have guns drawn on each other, and and Garcian was faster for some reason. Dan likes to talk a lot and is not necessarily the most effective when he's Dan Smith and not actually Garcian projecting Dan. <laughs> That's a confusing sentence. Um, I am inclined to think, though, that because a surprising amount of the stuff that we see is meant to be taken literally, that Garcian's third eye would still be open when he went to the rooftop, because young Harmon Smith says he found Garcian on the rooftop in a daze. Or maybe... Yeah, yeah, it's true. Okay. Now, from that, you can also say, okay, what are the other supernatural stuff we've seen? Well, maybe Curtis, but maybe not. That could be just how it was presented, him running in first-person perspective, or just something to make the sequence move a bit faster. So you don't have to just sit there and watch him walk down a corridor step-by-step-by-step, because that's boring. Okay. Um... There's also um, Trevor, uh, 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 Trevor Pearl Harbor, who is precognizant. Okay, that one might possibly be from some influence from the two. Okay, there's the Akimo. Okay, there's so much Kunlan involved in that whole side of things, I would not be surprised if he had affected uh, Toru Fukushima to help him be able to write the Yakumo. Oh, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, yeah. And the Yakumo also affected Andre Olmeda and allowed him to do all that stuff. Okay, so there's some bridge jumping that happens here, but you can reasonably trace all of the things that we've listed, all of these supernatural things, back to potentially uh, Harmon's celestial entities, Harmon Smith and Kunlan. But I think this breaks with the handsome men. The handsome men sure seem to behave somewhat supernaturally, particularly when you see love teleport. And that's a government operation. It's a United States government operation, which it it doesn't it doesn't feel like Harmon Smith would have affected that one because it sure seems like Harmon Smith is the is kind of representative of the Western side of things here, um, and Kunlan on the Eastern side. When we see like Kunlan is um, uh, influencing Matsuken so deeply, right? Right. Yeah. And Harmon Smith seems to be working entirely through 
Garcian. So I don't quite buy that the handsome men and love Wilcox, that their supernatural abilities, powers, or whatever, have the same root, which calls into question the originating point of everything else if you say it doesn't all have to come from the same point. Yeah, the only way that would make any sort of logical sense is if the implication is that the United States had maybe developed a way to make their own, I guess, supernatural entity, and they created the handsome men. But even then, that's a pretty big leap. Yeah, I mean, the, the I don't see the United States as creating their own celestial entity so much as it's either Harmon Smith's influence routed back into the handsome men, or the supernatural abilities do not require Harmon or Kuhn to manifest. They can come from other things. And at that point, you can uh, extend that out and say, well, maybe Garcian's abilities, maybe Amir's abilities really are just his. And if that's the case, um, if that's the case, oh my God, I almost, I, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering where that all came from. I it's official, folks. The the game has actually broken us at this point. <laughs> uh, well, you you also have to start questioning, like, okay, we're you know all the ghosts following him are these real ghosts? Where you, well, you get insights from them that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So these aren't like figments of Garcian's imagination. They're they're remnant psyches. They're the the remainders of these people who are helping or antagonizing or whatever. <sighs> I'm not sure how much else I can I can squeeze out of this line of, of thinking. I got some other stuff to talk about, but uh, Goose, does this make sense to you? Does this... It, it, it's, it's a... The only thing I can think of is that <laughs> is in, mo in a lot of Japanese writing, someone who has the third eye of the spirit is usually someone who... Who usually the third eye allows them to contact the other world and lets them talk to spirits. So one would assume that maybe that's what they're going for with um, Amir having the third eye, and that is the residual effect from that. Even when he's Garcian, he can still see the spirits of the dead that can um, aid him. But even then, again, that's a pretty big leap. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's also why he gave up the vision ring, because the vision ring would be seen as almost like a prosthetic to get over the fact that his third eye has been sealed closed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So, yeah, the question, the, the other question about this is, did the third eye, is that something that Amir had on his own, or was it something that Celestial Entity Harmon Smith gave to him? And I, upon consideration of all of these aspects, I am of the opinion that it, that is a trait and ability inherent to Amir Parkreiner. Yeah, I would agree. I think that was something he had before his interactions with Smith, if I were to make a guess, because, as you said earlier, Harmon said he found him on the roof in a daze, where if he already had the eye at that point, so that would have mean he would have had to have had it before Harmon found him. Mm -hmm. Again, it's it's something where we're trying to take what we see. It's not directly literal, but it's more literal than you might think, you know. So if we take it that way, then he would have had the third eye when he was on the roof before Harmon took him under his wing, quote unquote. 
Exactly. Unless you wanted to say, okay, he was on the on the roof in a daze. Harmon found him, took him under his wing, gave him the third eye. Then Garcian's influence closed the third eye. Like you could take that as symbolic as to say Garcian was an alternate personality that subsumed Amir Parkreiner as a personality, and that's what closed the third eye. Which at this point, you also have to start wondering how Amir Parkreiner manifested himself enough to hire Jimmy Gagnon to uh, uh, research Killer 7. Which, in turn, is, of course, why uh, uh, Gagnon was never going to get the money, because Amir Parkreiner is not here, man. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I actually feel kind of good about what we've gone through here so far. I don't know about you. <laughs> I think we're actually making some progress into trying to disseminate what this game actually is. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a there's a few other kind of tricky things that I, I I noticed. Um, right, I'm going through my notes here. Stuff like uh in the game of Mahjong, um, there was the line uh the one who designs first wins. Uh, that line gets a bit mirrored when you're having the conversation with Toru Fukushima, who is hired to design and devise the Yakimo. So I guess the implication is that someone planned things out first, and the first plan, for some reason, the, philosophically in this world, the, the first one to plan has an advantage. Um, then there's uh, one thing I notice is that before you get into Trevor Pearl Harbor's studio in uh, the Dominican Republic... The reason you have to be Dan to get in there for this one is because there is a um, a spawner in front of it, and a lot of the spawner things, they, they you know, the ones that drop out eggs that you shoot and a heaven smile emerges from it, those things, a lot of them have, to beat them, you have to hit those little colored spots, and a lot of them have red ones that require Dan to be able to destroy. That one has red ones. Dan has to destroy it. But the shape of it, I don't know if this is me projecting stuff or anything, but the outline of it reminded me of uh, um, a woman giving birth. I might you know, be... that you, know, you mentioned that. Yeah, that is kind of what the shape looked like. Yeah, he's he kind of had those things reaching out, kind of like its legs were in stirrups, or like it yeah, were, they were legs in stirrups. And I, that might just be kind of like a modern art imprinting something onto something that that was coincidental and not intended. But it it seemed to me that it fit because you're going into a place of artistic creation, which can be looked at as giving birth to a creation. Yeah, actually, that makes us a, a remarkable amount of sense when now that I'm looking back. Yeah. Oh, you're making me feel better about myself saying that that makes <laughs> like, like surprising amount of sense. Okay, good. Um, and a question for you, because I want to know your uh, interpretation of this one when it comes to when Almeida was injected. The military comes in, grabs Almeida, inject him with something, and you see his eyes roll back and he passes out. Now, pretty much every time I saw that, I interpreted it as, as uh, a tranquilizer. Uh, and that he was in a spacesuit because uh, he was scared of catching Heaven's smile. It's treated, al in that sequence, it's treated almost like an STD or um, zombieism. Like, he just doesn't want anything to transmit to him. Um, do you think that they injected him with a tranquilizer or injected him with something to turn him into a heaven smile. I've always looked at that a few times. I've, go, I've gone back and watched over those scenes again. And honestly, I almost think looking back that maybe he already had been infected with heaven smile 
And he put that on almost not necessarily to protect himself, but to protect the people around him, the quote unquote cult he had brought around him. And that that tranquilizer, when he was unconscious, whatever power he had to keep it in check was no longer working. And that's why he immediately transformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of took it as when they tranquilized him, they took him out of the suit. That much exposure pushed him over the edge and then he transformed. Not that he was infected already and trying to protect other people. Yeah, that does make a lot more sense when I think about it. Um, but that also brings into the question, why did his blood kill everybody? Like that. The only thing sense. I can figure from that is that maybe because he had given himself so many diseases to cure, maybe yeah. his blood had just become toxic. That's the only thing I can come up with on that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that part makes sense. I don't know, that, that, that part's... Again, this is a bit where there's clearly stuff there. There's kind of an intention behind it, but there's there's enough obfuscated that you can read it several different ways. A bit like, uh, so is Kisai um, Iwazaru, or the last the last smile looked a whole lot like Iwazaru, but it was Kunlan inside. So is Kunlan trying to influence you subtly out from under Harmon Smith? Celestial Entity, Harmon Smith, or whatever. Like, what Iwazaru is is never exactly settled. Yeah, they don't really, they don't ever, ever actually, like you said, there's never where they, like, put the pieces together and say, this is what Uwaru was, or whatever. You're just kind of, you're just kind of left, like you said, there are a bunch of threads where you can make connections, but there's nothing that the game itself actually makes for you. Okay. Then, one thing I noticed, this might just be a, um, coincidence, but, when Matsukin was going to kill himself in Sunset, it was the same method that you see Garcian do at the end of, uh, oh, why can't I remember the name of the stage now? Um, Smile? Yeah, Smile. Uh, you see him stick the barrel in his mouth, kind of point it up to try to get at the brain. Um, definitely not a um, Tyler Durton method there. Not through the jaw. They, they made sure to point it up. Um I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if that was an intentional parallel or just a coincidence. I'm honestly not sure myself on that, if it's supposed to be like drawing a parallel between the two of them both trying to escape, or if it's just a complete coincidence. Okay, and now I'd like to point out the overarching mechanical metaphor in the game, which is, and it and it fits if you're thinking about Celestial entities, Harmon and Kuhn, influencing things and setting things up for you. Like, they're playing chess, right? Um, and the ch- they control all the pieces in chess. If you're going to say, I am a piece... If you're going to say, like, I am the rook or something, and you would think I'm making all of these moves myself, is a little abstract, but actually this other entity is controlling you, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. When you're playing the game, you're entirely on rails. Like, it's just the mechanics of the game. You're going forward, back. You have some branches that you can take, but you do not have freedom of movement. Oh my god, the chess metaphor makes way more sense than I thought when I started talking <laughs> right now. Yeah, actually, it does make a lot more sense. Yeah, you're you're just the piece on the board, whereas the higher-ups are actually controlling you. Right. You're put in these positions, like, so many times in, in the recap here, it's just like, we're saying, you just got to roll with it. This part doesn't make sense. You wind up here to do this thing. Your reasoning isn't clear, right? You, If you think about it this way, you never actually have agency in what's going on. 
and the sort of rail shooter nature of it drives that point home. You can't control where you're going. Not much at any rate. Exactly. Uh, the only choice that you actually have is at the very end as to whether or not you kill Matsuken. That is the only way that the story branches. I mean, I can't, I can't even think of anything that's really optional. Any optional objectives in the game. Other than... Yeah, he, yeah, whether or not he lives or dies is really the only choice you technically make throughout the entire game. There's... I suppose you don't have to pick up the stamina ring because that just increases your defense. Um, I suppose you don't have to, like, Master Smith has those power-ups that, that he gets. There's one of them that you can skip if you wanted, or, or if you just didn't bother to look for it. But there's not much in the way of, like, collectibles in the game that, that you can or that you can grab or avoid. So if you take progression in the game as a given, yeah, that's the only choice of any significance that you really have, and that just gives you, a, and, and the variance there is very minor. Where um, gameplay-wise, you just see, two, uh, like, they're like five or ten seconds long. You either get this one or this other, right? Right, yeah. And whichever one you pick a hundred years later, the difference is gone. You're back to Harmon and Kuhn shooting at each other. Celestial entity Harmon and Kuhn. Yeah. So it seems like the some of the, the, the message here is kind of an argument against free will. Yeah, the idea being that no matter what happened, the end of it, it still goes back to the status quo. Or what's what the things that are controlling what's going to happen, they're going to do it, and you can't affect them. Exactly. Which, in turn, would be the status quo, like you said. Um, okay. Did I have it? Do you have any other observations to add to this? One thing I did notice going back through the game a second viewing is originally when we first watched it and I saw the last cutscene, I made the reference that Harmon and Harmon and the other fellow were basically God and the devil. But looking back at it, it's almost like both of them are coming from the same – it's not necessarily a good and evil mentality. It's more just – it's sort of – in a very Japanese way, it's sort of yin and yang. Mm. They're the same side. They're the same side, but from they're the same coin, but just different sides. Yeah, yeah, I buy that because uh, you know it. Harmon's outfit looks a bit like a priest, so it's really easy to slip into thinking of of a a heaven and hell thing, and they play into it too with the um like, oh, she was an angel. Sure, it wasn't the hell's angel. And there's that one bit in um, in the amusement park where where Dan gets like a new gun, and there's that weird angel that hands you the 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 uh, the gun and a soul shell. So again, this is not a power up that you can skip. You have to have the soul shell. But that character that gives him to you is called the Fallen Angel. Like they really play up these Western religion style references. So it's oh, yeah. it's easy to fall into it, but the yin and yang also makes sense. But if you if you think of the the black and white color pattern of the chess, it all comes back to the chessboard, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at the same time, you know, heaven's smile—that's another thing. Um, who uh, the god hand? I mean, God doesn't necessarily have to to fall under a, the the Judeo Western Judeo Christian definition of God, but with the other things, it just you, you from from our position 
in the United States, we kind of slip into that. If anyone out there is, has, first of all, if you've listened to us this far, thank you very much for actually continuing to listen to this inane rambling. But we are severely impressed. <laughs> I, I practically just gone under this exercise to just excise this game from my mind to try to put it to bed for myself. But, um, if anyone listening to this has a, a, a greater understanding of, um, or, or is native to, um, Eastern religions or, or I suppose particularly Shinto, I guess. But if I would be curious what the observation would be of Harmon and Kuhn, does it appear to follow like a Western heaven, hell, God, devil kind of a thing? Does it seem to fall into that? Or in, in an Eastern religious tradition, does the default read of that come across differently? Um, if a person like that is out there that can answer that question, uh, you comment on the video or the podcast or my Twitter at kinetic nose or email me, uh, kinetic at enthusiasts.com or any of that. Um, I really want to know, but there's, there's still more to talk about here. Okay. One second. I'm checking my notes again. All right. One, I, I need to, to point out again the, the seeming continual theme of, um, sort of presentation of reality. Uh, because Garcian exists because Emir closed his third eye, closed himself off to the truth, and constructed a reality for himself to believe in with some false harm that he grabbed, um, working for the U.S. government and, and, uh, not realizing himself. And, and, and that also goes into like the way he resurrects the other personas if they die, he grabs them and you do the mini game and, um, to, 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 to revive them. Um, it, it all feels to me like a, a sort of presentation of reality thing there. Uh, and that goes to, um, Andre Olmeda as well. Um, I think Travis pointed out, um, corporation, this was the line, corporations are built on lies. The lad has hints of genius, it's Andre Almedia, dazzle people with smoke and weirs, mirrors, and swoop down like an eagle to clutch their hearts in your claws. So, you know, dazzling with smoke and mirrors, present a false reality to, to trick people. Again, you can have a false reality where, um, you believe that free will exists. Um... Same sort of thing with um, the the handsome man. Uh, Trevor Pearl Harbor created a false reality for himself that he was controlling the handsome men rather than, you know, seeing what they were going to do. Or were the handsome men themselves, Electro Inline is a propaganda outfit where they're trying to frame everything in such a way to create a false reality for the consumers of their media. In fact, you could almost see when the um, handsome men die just how our characters burst into blood and theirs burst into code, it almost could be seen as like a metaphor to the fact that while we were flesh and blood, that they were merely a construct. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, a couple other neat things here. You'll notice that um, there, Travis, the stuff that he has on his tank tops, have themes in each stage. Uh, this doesn't really mean too much, I don't think. Um, but it's kind of a neat trend. Like one of them, uh, they're all like Western. I mean, I'm not Western. Um, wrestling moves. 
uh, let me see here. Uh, yeah, or not necessarily moves, but references. Uh, in Cloudman, they're, they're Lariat, Hustle, which was a, a wrestling promotion, uh, Neck Hanging, or like a hangman's neck breaker, and Spinning Toe, as in a spinning toe hold. In Encounter, they're all like um, music references. Alternative, New Wave, Digital Rock, Beat Rock, Gothic Metal, Neo Acoustic, Rave. But this gets uh, really dark in Smile, the last stage that you see him, where most all of his tank tops have names, except for the one where it's like, hey, what's written on my shirt is uh, code, and one where he doesn't have anything written on him. The rest of them are references to terror attacks. Um, New York, Bali, Nairobi, Lockerbie, and Beirut. So just... Another one of those examples of um, weird little themes that go on in the game that don't necessarily contribute to the overarching theme, the core themes or narratives, but are there nonetheless. Right. One of those things you wouldn't necessarily notice your first playthrough, but you will as you go further forward. Yeah. You, especially if you pay attention. I didn't necessarily notice all of uh, how regular this was until... I uh, I was looking this up, and I saw them all listed. And I think it was Lariat and Spinning Toe that uh, was the first serious connection that I made. Yeah, I can honestly say I didn't catch that at all the first time we went through. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And um, to kind of take a step back, speaking of kind of reality over yourself, uh, free will, self-delusion, that kind of stuff. I, to some extent, it, this might be an interpretation or thing, but I, I believe I mentioned this as we were playing through, that when you do the grabbing the head of a persona that's died and reviving him, you have that, um, you're putting the head in the case, which kind of brings up the question as a player, what's in the, what's, what's in the box? It, it's a head. Um, but, uh, uh, in the background, you see this purple curtain, which is pretty similar to the purple curtain that's on the stage when you're shooting Greg Nightmare. So when the sh this is something where I think actually lends itself to a bit of a less literal interpretation, where has some of this stuff all been happening in Garcian's head while he's there in front of Greg Nightmare? Like, oh, someone died, go there, here's the stage. Or maybe they were just reusing an asset, I don't know. But it, it it seems to be really interesting that when you revive it, you grab it, when you grab the head, there's a curtain behind you that looks like you're in this space where all of the other personas died. And you could even see it, since that's the same place where the safe was, if my memory's correct. No, that no, it could no, even that be the the that one, I, I will correct you there, the safe was behind... <laughs> the principal's office and you had to do that to be able to get into the gymnasium. So those were that's different right. Things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. That one, I, I want to say there's something really big there, but the, as I'm thinking about it now, it, it kind of feels like a, um, just a, a rabbit hole that, that calls into question a lot of the other stuff that we've been discussing here with regards to like 
the nature of Garcian Smith and Harmon Smith and Kunlan and all this other stuff. And that again is one of the just fascinatingly infuriating things about this game is the further you <laughs> dig on something and you're just like, well, how does this fit in? Well, well, crap. If I'm going to put that into the case, everything else I've built falls over. It's like a giant game of mental Jenga. <laughs> <laughs> Except all the pieces are different shapes. Ugh. And made of jello. And made of jello. Yes, it's jello Jenga. That's that I think that is trying to put together the plot and the meaning of this game is like playing Jenga with jello jigglers. Jesus, that's just a nightmare. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're going to play Django with Jello, that little, um, you ever, you, this is a total tangent, but you seen that little thing someone made? It was like a spring loaded thing that could just knock Jenga pieces out. So you could just, you could get any piece out, really? Yes, I've seen that. <laughs> that will not work with Jello Jenga. No, it's just going to make a hell of a mess. <laughs> okay. Now, one last thing that I wanted to point out. Some of the weirdness in this game, like the moon loading screen going through the television, those creepy twins, the um, the guy at the desk of the hotel are references to other games. Now, apparently that's because this has been referred to. As, apparently there's a, 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 a series of games that are kind of thematically linked a bit like the uh, Canetto or Cornetto trilogy, the of, um, uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and uh, uh, World's End, you know, where they're right, not right. exactly sequels, but they star the same people, they're by the same crew, and they're kind of thematically linked. There is a series called a Kill the Past series, where a big element of these stories is the protagonists having a past that maybe they've repressed memories of, they've been ignoring it, or they they've done something, and they have to realize that confront it and kill that past to be able to move on which that fits in really well here because we see uh garcian smith recognizing that he was a mere park reiner you know literally his alternate personalities die so that he can move on as an individual yeah that actually fits again surprisingly well when you think about it yeah um, and that's where these other characters come from, like the television and the moon thing are apparently things in these other games. So, oh my goodness. Part of me wants to say that it feels like a weight has been lifted off my mind after this conversation to just kind of iron out so many details about this game. Um, I think that about covers most of my notes. And when I say most, I mean effectively all that are actually applicable to anything. I mean... We can go into more like, oh, Kess Bloody Sunday, another thing named after a terrorist event. Um, some more details about, I don't know, Pedro and, and the relationship with um, Curtis and Dan. And again, why did Dan die twice? Like, did Dan die and then get absorbed by Harmon Smith that took in Garcian and then... That was the Smith Syndicate was like an old version of the Killer Seven, but Garcian just ran through them. And I don't want to get into that, though, unless you do. Well, I feel like before we wrap anything, what we have to really get into is the biggest mystery of Killer Seven. Why the hell did the speakers look like pressed paper? <laughs> <laughs> oh, post-it note speakers.
Also, why why did the TV when you were looking at it look different than it did in the room? See, this could this could set us on a whole other tangent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna say another presentation reality thing there. That Maybe. makes as much sense as anything else we can come up with. To be honest, <laughs> Garcia never actually had a television. It, the, the 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 speakers didn't. Or maybe he did, but it was just the picture tube and it barely worked. And so he just put pictures of speakers on there to try to make old man Harmon, Harmon bum, whatever you want to call him, happy. I mean, I guess he's going to start calling him hum. <laughs> oh, okay. I think, I think we're about done. Do you think we're done? I believe we may be. Oh my goodness. Well, to anybody out there, who is still with us? Thank you so much. If if you're listening to this and haven't seen the videos, you can check them out on the Enthusiacs YouTube channel. Uh, they're going to be up there both with commentary from uh, me and Goose and without. Are they going to be up there without? I'll figure out something. Um, they are entire stages at once. If if I get Ten requests. I'll re-edit them to be in in shorter bite-sized chunks, but I can't guarantee the edits are going to be feeling natural. Because when we recorded stuff, we didn't set it up with the um, express intention of having uh, intermediate break points. So yeah, one one video, one stage. Uh, I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you for coming with me on this journey to anyone still with us. Thank you for coming with me on this journey, Goose. And if uh, anybody finds this stuff interesting, perhaps I can talk Goose to doing this again with me for another one of these games in the Kill the Past series. And we can just start the whole process all over again, as though we are Harmon Smith and Kun Lan. Wouldn't that be fun? Indeed it would. We'll be doing this for at least a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We do this again. No, th- th- this this has been in production for far too long. That's entirely my fault. I went about this in a stupid way. If we do this again, we're going to do it way better and it'll go way faster. Not fast, but faster. It won't be but like... faster, yes. Yeah, it won't be like <laughs> a two-year-long ordeal. <laughs> this has been a good, a good long journey, but I'll admit it has been a fun journey. All right. Well... Thank you, Goose, for joining me on this voyage of confusion and discovery. And thank you for inviting me along. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess I'll give you my usual sign-off. If anyone out there wants to see me write about anything on the Behind the Line article series or hear us talk about anything on the Behind the Line radio podcast, or I suppose, to cap this one off... See Goose and me try to play through any particular games. You can always get in touch with me at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. Leave comments on the podcast or the video, or get in touch with me through Twitter at Kinetic Knows. That's K-Y... Oh, my God. I forgot how to spell my own Twitter handle. At Kinetic Knows, K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K-K-N-O-W-S. My brain is about to leak out my ears. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night, everyone. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts 
Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter, at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. Thank <laughs> you.